You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. It'll probably uh, come as no surprise to most of you that we'll be continuing through our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, today we're going to be digging into chapter 16 and uh, studying another one of Jesus' parables. And I should note that it's a particularly challenging one, both in its difficulty to interpret and understand what's going on, but, but more so in the way that, that it brings conviction to us as believers concerning the way in which we are or aren't making the most of what we've been given. So get ready. And if you have your Bibles, please turn with me now to Luke 16. And we'll be starting in verse 1, and we'll be reading to verse 15. So Luke 16, 1 to 15. Now, Jesus said to his disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. And so he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know, I know what I'll do, so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. And so he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Well, take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another. Well, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Well, take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So, if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what, what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him, and he told them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Back in the uh, early 2000s, while I was going to Bible college, I spent my summers working at an assembly line factory where, they, where we built furniture. So fun. Uh, during one of those summers, it was my job to build drawers. I spent four months of my life making drawers. Drawers for bedside tables, drawers for dressers, 
drawers for desks, you name it. If there was a drawer that needed to be made, I built it. And, and so each and every morning of, of that summer when I came into work, what would happen is they would provide me with a workbench and a workstation. They would provide me with the tools and supplies that I'd need and with the proper instructions for how to build the specific drawer that needed to be built that day. With, and, and so with all of those things that they gave me, I'd get to work. And then at the end of every day, they also required me to give an account of how many drawers I'd managed to build that day, which meant that before I could leave and, and, and go home, I would have to hand in a record sheet upon which I'd recorded the number of my drawer builds, just so that they could see if I met or even exceeded their expected quota for the day. And if I didn't meet the quota, they would warn me, of course, to, to make better use of my time and better use of their resources, or else. I never had to deal with the or else part, thank, thank goodness. F fair enough though, right? That, like, they, they were paying me to do a job, and it was also their equipment and their supplies, which they were letting me use to do it. So they certainly had a right to, to review and take account of the quality and the amount of work that I was doing for them, right? And, and in a similar fashion, Jesus tells a parable here to his disciples about a man who is working as the manager for, for his wealthy master's household. And we find that, that he also has to give an account for his work. But just so we're clear, that this manager title, so we, just, so we understand what a manager is, this manager title basically means that, that he's the head servant of the household. His job uh, would be to manage all the affairs and, and other staff or servants on behalf of his master. So he'd be tasked with, you know, running the, the property, making sure other servants were fed and doing their jobs well. He'd also be trusted with managing the finances and making decisions on his master's behalf. So all in all, we can assume then that as a servant himself, he, he would have had very little to call his own. But yet, he could still, he was still able to, li to, to live like he had a lot because he had discretion and access to everything in his master's house. And again, was trusted with the responsibility of being the steward over his master's money and his possessions. But then Jesus implies that, like the prodigal son whom we discussed last week, he implies that he's been squandering all this wealth and all this money somehow that he's supposed to be steward over. Maybe he's embezzling it, or maybe he's just being lazy with the accounts, or most likely he was misusing and abusing his given authority and trust by living a lavish life with all that wealth for his own pleasure, which would be similar to uh, the manager from another parable which Jesus told in Luke 12. Uh, and in that parable, the, the manager thought his master was a long way off and, and wouldn't ever find out about his disobedience if the master shows up. Uh-oh, right? So it's, it's only fair then. So we don't actually know what was happening there, but we know he was misusing uh, his stewardship. So it's only fair then that, that his master does find out he's been squandering the resources, then the master calls him in and, and says, you must give an account of your work and, and you can no longer work here anymore. Um, and before we go any further, I, I want to interject a thought here about that, and it's this, from Romans 14, 10 to 12, where the Apostle Paul writes, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, 
every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself, of himself, to God. Each of us will give an account to God. Over, over the past month and a half, we've been, we've been emphasizing the, the importance of living our lives in the anticipation of Jesus Christ coming again, and, and, and which means we're to look forward to it and, and, and rejoice in the knowledge that one day Jesus will return in victory to, first of all, you know, usher his bride, the church, into the presence of God within the new Jerusalem, to, and, and he'll initiate the final crushing blow on evil, and he'll restore heaven and earth. And so with, with all that in view, as we anticipate that, we, we should be filled with both hope and faith and an urgency in our calling. But how much more so should it fill us with the desire to, to be faithful in obedience as well when we know that each and every person in this world will at that time stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for their lives? Of course, as believers, we are saved by grace. We believe in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace and now justified and covered by the blood of the Lamb, which means we won't be judged according to our sin, but according to the righteousness of Christ who already took our punishment for us at the cross. In other words, our salvation and eternal life through Christ isn't in question here. But yet, there, there's a sense in which we'll still stand before the judge and be rewarded, or not, for how faithfully and obediently we then lived out this new spirit-filled life that we've been freely given by Jesus. So this should make us pause and, maybe, and hopefully instill a little more fear of God into our hearts. And hopefully that'll transition into a passion-filled desire to be good stewards of our calling and of what he's given us to accomplish it which is what we'll get to momentarily. So speaking of stewardship, though, again, at, at this point in the parable, we now find that this unrighteous steward or manager has a problem, right? Yesterday, he was living it up like he was the richest man in the world, though, again, with money and resources that weren't his. And now today, he's about to get thrown out onto the street with nothing. And since he doesn't see himself as the labor type, labor job type, he can't dig, he says, or any, and he's too ashamed to beg, and see himself as the begging type, he devises a plan. He devises a plan. He decides that before he delivers the final record of his accounts to his master, he's going to take advantage of a bunch of people who are in debt to his master by meeting with them and then lowering their debts. And so he's hoping that in doing this, that, that they'll then think of him as this generous and helpful guy. And yeah, man, that guy was so nice. I don't know why he got fired, right? That's what he's hoping they'll think of him. And so in a sense, he'll, he's also making them indebted to him in a way as well, right? And also that when he gets thrown out of his master's house, they might remember him and invite him to stay at their houses. That's his plan. 
And, and so it goes down like this, Luke 16, 5 to 7 again. And so he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And the first one, how much do you owe my master? And, the, and he said, a hundred measures of oil, he said. So take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. So he cuts it in half. Then next he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Well, take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. So he takes 20% off, right? And, and both of those values in the economy back then, both of those values would actually equal 500 denarii approximately. And so I, I should mention that has been suggested by some that that specific amount of debt which he takes off of their bills, that 500 denarii, uh, that, that that might actually equal the tax which his master might have levied on them. A tax that, according to Jewish law, would have been unlawful to charge on their loan. It's also been suggested that the 500 denarii he discounts from their bill would have, would have possibly just been the manager's normal share of the cut if, if, he had been, if he had been able to keep his job which would imply that the master isn't really losing anything here, that he wouldn't have uh, gained anyways. But really, we don't know. That's all conjecture. And, and generally speaking, when it, when it comes to interpreting Jesus' parables, sometimes we can run the risk of reading too much into them or, or applying meaning to things or elements from them that, that weren't intended. So we have to be careful in doing that. Besides knowing or not knowing the reason uh, for the, uh, the amount of money, he takes off their debt, doesn't really add or take away from the main lesson of the parable, a lesson which hopefully will become clear in the next couple of verses as we go through them. So anyways, after, after the manager reduces the debts of his master's debtors, he finally gives an account before his master of his stewardship, and all the master can say to him at this point now is basically, well played, sir, well played, right? That's all he can say. In a surprising turn of events, the master actually commends this unrighteous manager for his, for his plan. Certainly not for his dishonesty or duplicity, of course, right? But, but for his shrewdness, it says. His cleverness in making good use of his master's resources for his personal gain and future security. And not only that, but we can also assume that, that, that the manager has also put his master in a tight spot here. Uh, since his master wouldn't be able to go back to those debtors and, and ask, ask them for the full payment after that, right? Or, or he'd look like a big stingy jerk. And this is probably what the manager was banking on. He, he deceptively made his master look generous while leaving him with, with no option for recourse. And yet all the while the manager benefits himself by gaining friends and indebted acquaintances who will hopefully welcome him, welcome him into their homes after he's fired. Very clever indeed. Very clever indeed. So it's a cool story, right? But here's my question, and something that, that you know, I've been asking, praying about, and struggling with all week. What are we, as, as Christians, who, who are called to live with integrity and righteousness, what are we supposed to learn from all this devious and deceitful behavior? Well, this is what Jesus tells his disciples next. Luke 16, 8 to 9. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, 
make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. So first of all, I want to emphasize that Jesus continually reminds us throughout this story and throughout this teaching, his teaching, that the manager is unrighteous. He keeps being called unrighteous, right? Which, which tells us pretty clearly, I think, I hope, that he's not meant to be a moral example for us, right? He's, we're not meant to be unrighteous like he is. That's not what Jesus is teaching us here. Rather, Jesus seems to be making the point that worldly people have this ability, and, and when we see it all the time, they have this ability to cleverly use worldly wealth to make friends for, for their own selfish purposes, right? And so in a, in a similar fashion, but with integrity, we as believers, as children of light, should follow that example by also cleverly using worldly wealth and resources, but for kingdom purposes. God has made us stewards in order to win souls for Jesus. One example of that is 1 Peter 4.10. Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so again, the, the unrighteous manager, he used his position as steward to meet with all those who were in debt, to his master, and then reduced their debt so they would invite him over to stay in their homes. In a similar manner, we as believers are called to be wise stewards of God's grace, his blessings, and his resources that he's given us in order to serve and befriend those who are sinfully indebted to God so that we can introduce them to the saving grace of Jesus Christ who generally takes away, who, who generously takes away their debt. And this will also benefit us as well, Jesus says, because in the end, we'll also be invited to the homes of those we've won for Christ. Not necessarily their earthly homes, per se, but their eternal ones. Jesus says their eternal dwellings. And, and, and if we think about that, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing to know and, and see with your own eyes every day for eternity, every morning that you wake up in the kingdom of God? To know that that a bunch of your neighbors within God's eternal kingdom are there because you faithfully told them about Jesus? Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, besides being in the presence of the holy and glorious God himself, could there be a better treasure in heaven than that? And so again, we're being called and, and taught by Jesus here to cleverly and wisely use our, what we've been given, our worldly wealth and our resources. And that, and that can include our time and our skills and our gifts as well. All, all we have, we sang, it, we sang it this morning, I surrender all. Right? We, we are to give all to him as a means and as tools to do kingdom work. On, on that end, previous to uh, telling this, this parable, Jesus had already instructed his disciples in how they were to to go out and preach the good news of the kingdom of God in this world. That that as sheep in the midst of wolves, they would would have to both be innocent and cunning in how they did it, right? Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents 
and innocent as doves. So they were to be innocent, right, in order to shine as lights of Christ's righteousness and goodness within a crooked and perverse world, but also so that no one could accuse them of, of wrongdoing and count their witness as void. So that's important. They need to be innocent as doves. Yet in the same vein, they were also told to be wise as serpents, shrewd, cunning with the methods and, and resources they were to use regarding how they approached unbelievers and shared the gospel with them. Really quick, though, I, I don't want us to misinterpret this lesson and, and, and start to think that, that Jesus is telling us to use worldly wealth as a means to manipulate or, or coerce or even to be disingenuous in our witness to him. Right? This isn't a game where we can simply pay people off or trick people or bribe people to believe in Jesus. Right? just want to make that clear. Rather, the truth is that if we do truly care for unbelievers and love our neighbors like Christ loved and died for us while we were still sinners, then we would have no issue in being genuine in the way we use and give and sacrifice our things and whatever resources are available to us in order to befriend them and in order to see them saved and reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And practically speaking, you know, th th this could be doing anything from, from, from using our, our wealth to sponsor a compassion child or supporting ministries with your tithes and offerings or giving missions to those who are on the front lines of this. Or it could be doing something like inviting your, your non-believing neighbors to your home for a dinner or, or a barbecue so you can get to, get to know them. And they can get to know you and you can trust each other to the point where you can share the gospel with them or, you, or just baking some cookies and dropping it off with a card of encouragement. You know? Or it could be buying someone a Bible. It, it could be inviting them to a hockey game. Again, so you can hang out with them and get to know them better. Or paying for their groceries or their utilities or medical bills when they can't afford it. Or lifting up those who are living in poverty, clothing someone. Right? Wh whatever it is, or ho however we do it, what will depend on what you've been given and, and what ideas God's given you, our passions God's given you to do it. But bottom line though, we're meant to faithfully, generously, and cleverly use all that we've been given and blessed with, our jobs, our homes, our stuff, our money, our talents, and our gifts, like whatever else, all of it, all of it is meant to be faithfully used to befriend and reach the lost for God's glory. And, and of course, if, if, we're, if we are walking in, in the freedom of Christ, and if we do truly recognize that all we have is God's anyway, and that we can't take it with us in the end, right? It'll fail us. All our wealth. This, if we recognize that, this shouldn't be difficult for us to do. First Chronicles 29.14 says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For every, everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Right? So all things come from God so that we can give, so that we can give it back to him for his glory. And as Jesus reminds us, whoever is faithful in little will be faithful with much. Luke 16, 10 to 13. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. And so if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? 
And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So first of all, we're reminded here that, that wealth definitely has that potential to, to become an idol or to become a master, or a master over us if we're not careful and if we forget that it doesn't really belong to us. We start serving the money instead of using the money to serve others. We're also being reminded that money and wealth is still a product of this world, that it will fail us. Along with my iPad that just stopped working. That was random. Anyways, as it says in First Timothy, the love of money can be a root of all kinds of evil, right? And so we need to be careful. And, and this is certainly what was happening with many of the Pharisees who were listening in on Jesus' teaching here. Like Jesus is teaching his disciples, but some Pharisees are obviously hanging around and kind of listening in. And it says they scoffed at Jesus' lesson. Don't you love that? When people scoff? It's the worst, isn't it? You're like trying to explain something to someone, someone's like, Pfft. like, oh man, if I was Jesus, which he kind of does with his words here, Luke 15, 15, he says, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Ouch. God knows their hearts, right? That's what he cares about. That's what we'll be judged by. Not by the amount of money we have or don't have. He's not impressed with that. But by the motivation of our hearts. How faithful we were to him and in our calling to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples with whatever we've been given. Whether it's a little or whether it's a lot. And, and that's really the point. And, and I want to emphasize that because I think a lot of us tend to, to make excuses or, or think that we just don't have enough to do this. We think, well, I'm not, we think we're not wealthy enough to use what, what we've been given to, to, to reach others with the gospel. We justify our, our lack of action and our generosity by saying, well, I'll, I'll be able to do that. I'll be able to, to be faithful in, in this and, and be generous just as soon as I get just a little more money, maybe a little 10% raise or something, or, or, or a better paying job or whatever, then I'll be able to do it. But Jesus shuts that type of thinking or excuse down instantly. He tells us flat out that we're called to be faithful with little. You don't need more money in your bank account to be obedient in this. The truth is that you have exactly what you need and you've been placed exactly where you're meant to be so that you can be effective in faithfully shining as a light for Jesus. Case in point, I received this little gift from Nora this morning. This is what she had to give, right? 
This is all. Just this, this little candy. That's all she had to give. But yet, she was able to brighten up my day. She was able to show me that she was thinking about me and that she cared about me with just this little gift. She's faithful with little. You don't need to be rich to do this. And if you're faithful with little, then you're proving that, that you are capable of being faithful with much. It doesn't start with being faithful with much. Of course, I also don't want us to misinterpret this verse the other way either. And, and I wish I didn't have to mention this, but just in case, I will. I just want to say that this isn't a, a get-rich-quick scheme or a formula for monetary gain, okay? Jesus isn't telling us that, that the amount of people we win for him or, or serve with our money will then directly correlate to an increase of money in our bank account with, so we can get nicer vehicles than a yacht or whatever, right? Like, we, we, we can actually be sure that this isn't what he means, some people teach that, so I have to mention this. We, we, we can actually be sure that this isn't what he means because he also reminds us over and over again that being rich is not synonymous with God's favor. In fact, he often tells us that it's, that it's harder for rich people to, to enter the kingdom of heaven because with their trust in mammon on wealth, they often fail to admit or, or see their need for Christ. They think they have all they need. They think they're secure already. And furthermore, in the parable which Jesus teaches after this in Luke 16, he describes how a rich man gets to go to hell because he lived his best life now instead of investing for eternity in God's kingdom by being a good steward of all that he was entrusted with specifically choosing to live selfishly instead of helping a beggar that sat at his front gate for years. So I'm not, it's, it's not a, a sin to be rich or anything like that. I don't want us to get that wrong either. But this isn't a, a get-rich-quick scheme. So no matter how much you have, whether it's a little or whether it's a lot, Jesus is teaching us here to remember that everything we have is God's, and we're simply stewards of it while we have it. It'll eventually fail us, right? We can't take it with us. And so that means we're, we're meant to entrust all of it to him and offer it all up for the use of his glory and purpose. Therefore, being faithful with little and then being faithful or entrusted with more simply means that if we're using what God's given us today to shine his light, to serve others, to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, then we'll have proven that we can be entrusted with more opportunity and resources tomorrow to continue in doing more of the same. Which again, may or may not mean more wealth. Either way, he'll always give us exactly what we need to live faithfully in this regard. And I want to emphasize the word faithfully here as well. Because the truth is we can't control the final outcome of our efforts, can we? And, and what I mean is, so we can invest in someone for years and show them love and, and, and give to them out of our abundance and, and, and tell them about Jesus. And yet, they still might not believe, sadly. And we can't control that part. Right? 
because how they respond is up to that person. It's up to the Holy Spirit. That's not our end of things. All in all, we're just simply meant, called to be faithful in doing it. We're called to be faithful. But yet we can be sure that the more faithful we are in being good stewards, the more our treasure and reward will be in heaven. And that's the promise, which is better than any earthly wealth because it's eternal and it's forever. In other words, if, if we are living faithfully, we'll be able to speak the same words as the Apostle Paul when we give an account before the Lord. Who he says, for, who, he says in, in 1 Timothy 4, 7 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, simply put, we're called to be faithful and clever stewards of what God's entrusted us with as we anticipate him coming again. As Henry Fielding once wrote, make money your God and it will plague you like the devil. But Jesus said, make money your servant and use today's opportunities as investments in tomorrow's dividends. Use what's temporary to invest in what's eternal. Use what's temporary to invest in what's eternal. Or as theologian Warren Wearsby writes, there are souls to win for the Savior, and our money can help get the job done. It's so that simple. It doesn't even need to preach a whole sermon. In summary, then, we know that when Jesus comes again, we'll all be called to give an account on whether we've squandered our stewardship or whether we've used it wisely cleverly and faithfully in order to persuade others in Jesus' name. Just as the Apostle Paul summarizes for us nicely in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 to 11, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So as we conclude, then I want to I challenge you all to ask yourself, what resources, what spiritual gifts, talents, blessings, employment, or possessions has God entrusted you with? And then how can you use those blessings, whether it's a little or a lot, how can you use them to bless and befriend others? in order to introduce them to Christ? How can I make clever or faithful use of what God's given me to gain more friends for eternity? That's what this is all about. And I, I, I encourage you to take those questions to heart because, again, this is what Jesus is calling us to do. This is why we are here. On that end, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of compassion, a God of justice, and a God of grace. And I thank you that we've experienced all of those things through Jesus Christ, who came and took our place at the cross so that we could be justified, forgiven of our sins, justified before you. 
and transformed into living sacrifices for your kingdom, Lord. And I pray that you would remind us daily that we are living sacrifices. Lord, that we would have have the the joy and, and the desire to surrender all we have to you. All our things, all our resources. That we would lay them down before you, knowing that you are the one who gave them to us in the first place. And that we would be able to use them for your glory. Lord God, I pray that you would give us generous hearts. Lord God, I pray that you would give us creative and and clever ideas and how to use what you've given us to love our neighbors and to show them your, your goodness and your grace and your love for them, Lord. Lord, above all, I pray that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.